There are lots of lousy businesses, and there's lots of wonderful businesses. It's the art and science of money. My job has been to try and figure out which is which. It's Hi-Fi Radio from the Global News Radio Studios in Toronto with Hi-Fi Portfolio Managers. Here's Wolfgang Klein and Jack Hartle. Well, happy weekend. Welcome back to the show, Hi-Fi Radio, the show about money on Global News Radio 640 in Toronto. Jack Hartle, producer of the show, my right-hand man. We're going to be discussing a number of different things. We'll start with uh, the season of commodities. Don Vilo, a market technician, uh, tells us the season shall continue. We're seeing a little bit of strength in crude oil this week. Base metals this week performed quite well, so Don's going to help us make sense of the commodity landscape. And the big Canadian six banks are reporting results, so Canaccord's bank analyst Scott Chan is going to Come online and help us make sense of those numbers, those billions and billions of dollars of bank profits. Don't you just love it? <laughs> I know you don't. And we're going to end it with a talk about the bond market. Do bonds matter? Why should you own bonds? Uh, Tim Hicks from Canso, a bond portfolio manager, is uh, going to tell us why, yes, we should own some bonds, even a low-rate environment, because they are ballast in your portfolio. Anyways, let's get back to Don Vila. Don, thank you very kindly for joining us this Saturday on Hi-Fi Radio. Thanks for having me back, Wolf. Yeah, you're very, very welcome. Uh, Don Vilo is a past, uh, you're the president, you were once, of the Canadian Society of Technical Analysts. You are a certified uh, chartered market technician, um, and you've been in this business for uh, close to 50 years, Don. That's a really, really good thing, because uh, with age comes wisdom, and with, is the, with wisdom comes uh, people like me asking guys like you a lot of questions. So you believe we are in the uh, continuing season of commodity strength. Uh, let's go through some of your findings, Don, in the, in the commodity landscape. It's been fascinating because uh, we had that correction in the equity markets about two weeks ago, and needless to say, everything got hit, including uh, uh, commodities and the CRB index. But subsequent to that, the CRB index has started to outperform the S&P 500, and that comes at a very good time because historically, uh, commodity prices in general move higher from around the middle of February right through until at least the end of April. It's happening again this year when the very, very strong crude oil prices and base metal prices during the last two weeks. Do, do you have a preference, uh, crude oil over rocks? Yeah, in this case, uh, I prefer crude oil right now because technically it looks much stronger on a relative basis. Uh, natural gas, for example, has not been doing that much. Uh, the base metal uh, prices have come back quite strongly. They've kind of underperformed the energy sector during the last uh, week or so, but uh, both those sectors, both the mining and the uh, energy sector, do look like they are in a very, very strong seasonal pattern. Mm-hmm. Why, why is it, Don, that these uh, these commodities outperform this time of the year? has a lot to do with the uh, demand and supply for commodities at this time. This is the time of year when people are, bu- are um, buying houses, they're buying cars. These are all things which use a lot of... Uh, of base metals, for example. That's the reason for base metals being stronger. In the case of crude oil, it has a lot to do with uh, something else. A lot of it has to do with the way uh, oil and gas is refined in the States. We have this shutdown period where the oil and gas uh, uh, industry shuts down their refining operations for annual maintenance, and that causes all kinds of strange things happening in the energy markets. Uh, most notably uh, during the last couple of weeks when you had this kind of this conversion during the maintenance period, gasoline prices go up strongly. And that's historically happened virtually every year for the last 10 years. Uh, gasoline prices go up from February right through until 
the big holiday in, in uh, the States around the end of April. It's just happening again. And, and, and we always think it's around the May long weekend when gasoline prices Driving go. season, yeah. Driving season, yeah. Uh, we have Don Velo on the line, uh, the fantastic author, a market technician, uh, a very, very wise man. You take a look at his website, timingthemarket.ca, and who said you can't time the market, eh, Don? You certainly can. So, so, so let's talk about that. So how do you think it's, it, it's most likely to be able to successfully time the market? Well, it's because of the... Um, the fundamentals which are backing uh, the seasonality. All these seasonal trades happen because of recurring annual reasons. Uh, mm-hmm. just, just mentioned, for example, uh, uh, every year at this time of year, the refiners shut down a lot of their operations and they go into uh, a period when gasoline is less uh, likely to be available. So that's something which happens every year. And every once in a while, you get kind of an extra spurt. Like, for example, two years ago, there was a whole bunch of refineries which blew up. <laughs> they used to say that had a very positive impact on gasoline prices that particular year. Haven't heard anything like that this year so far. <laughs> no, no, no refinery won't happen. H- hence, hence the NIMBY, eh? Not in my backyard with one of those refineries. Yeah, uh, exactly. That, that's exactly it. Yeah, so, they, Don, Don, you mentioned the uh, the predictability of the seasons. How about the weather? Because you talked about nat gas, very weak. We've got some very warm weather coming at us right now. So how do you see that playing into nat gas and then being able to predict that? Because uh, it, it is, like I said, very dependent on the weather. This year, uh, obviously, we're having a, a warm end of the season, uh, the winter season, that is. Uh, do you expect that Jack to play out in the nat gas price? The <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's fascinating because if you look at the natural gas storage in the United States right now, on a, relative to the last five years, Natural gas storage is actually at the uh, bottom of the normal range for inventories. It means that inventories are less than average right now. And we've had really warm weather uh, during the last few days here in in the Toronto area. But if you look at the uh, uh, national weather forecast for the United States uh, for the month of March, they're looking for colder and wetter than average weather. That's a classic for natural gas prices to uh, all of a sudden spurt higher, particularly when inventories are at lower than average levels as they are this year. It hasn't happened yet. We've seen natural gas prices actually hit new lows just during the last uh, few days. But look for a possible spurt in natural gas prices as we get into the month of March. Uh, look, we have Don Velo on the line. Uh, Don, stay with us. We're going to pay some bills around here. Uh, coming up after break, we'll bring you back and talk a little bit more about seasonality as you are a chartered market technician and a very, very wise man. Good to have you on Hi-Fi Radio. Stay tuned. Don't go anywhere. There's more great show after this. You're listening to Hi-Fi Radio from Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Isn't that something else, eh? A little ally to get me going. Uh, welcome back. Hi-Fi Radio, Global News Radio 640 in Toronto. Jack Hartle in the studio. Don Velo on the line, a chartered market technician. Good friend of mine for about, uh, don't you say 17 years now, Don? 18 years. Yeah. Like, time flies. It's unbelievable. So uh, a story that's uh, two weeks old just caught, uh, came across my desk because uh, I don't pay much attention to the wine business, you know. Uh, but, you like uh, to import your wine. Yeah, like from Italy, <laughs> that is. Um, uh 
Alberta blocking British Columbian wine. I thought that was the most socialistic, communistic move I've ever heard in Canada, let alone from, from the province of Alberta. And so I said, Jack, did you catch a story? He said, yeah, it's got to do with the Trans Mountain Pipeline being uh, blocked by the British Columbian government. I said, my goodness me, look at these trade War is taking place within our own country. Yeah, forget, forget about NAFTA. We got the provinces having trade wars but, with but each other. But wine, BC wine, not going into Alberta. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I couldn't believe it. I really, really couldn't. I, I wonder, you know, who's going to scream uncle first? Um, or well, the feds will step in and separate the two children. You know, or maybe they have to step on some grapes. <laughs> is what they're going to have <laughs> yeah. to do. Okay? Uh, so, so Don, we're talking Nat gas here because uh, a part of the problem we have with Nat gas in Canada is it doesn't leave the continent. It's too continental, and the British, the British Columbia doesn't want to allow for LNG facilities. Uh, so you're, you're keen on crude, uh, but crude looks relatively rude in Canada. Uh, it, it, the differentials, as we as they call them, are about thirty dollars, which means Canadian producers on oil get thirty dollars a barrel less than their than, than their American cousins. Uh, who said last last week to not me, not just Jack, the Americans, global, go, the, the, the global yeah. peers, yeah. But they said that Canada basically is subsidizing American energy at Absolutely, these levels. Yeah. It's, it's incredible. Uh, and, and so Trump is up in, up in arms about, I don't know, milk and, and lumber, and yet they're, they're getting their oil for free from us. It's been fascinating. That implies that Canadian oil producers, particularly oil sand companies, will benefit less from the uh, seasonality in crude oil prices. There's a small offset uh, to this. Uh, during the last two to three weeks, we've seen the Canadian dollar weaken significantly, partly because of this issue, by the way, also because of what's happening with, with NAFTA. A lower Canadian dollar has a positive impact on the value of of oil that's shipped to the States because sure. oil is priced in U.S. dollars. Yeah, a bit of a mugs game, but yeah, for sure. So you, so as, as playing crude, would you rather play the Canadian producers or would you play the American producers? Prefer the U.S. producers at this stage. They seem to be acting technically better than the Canadian producers. So choose U.S. right now over over Canada. The other issue, of course, is the Kinder Morgan stock itself. It's been fascinating watching what it's been doing during the last few weeks. It looked for a while that uh, hey, things are going to be going okay, and we're going to be ha- having this uh, pipeline extension uh, continued. That happened, uh, kind of peaked around uh, about four weeks ago, and then all of a sudden people said, whoops, yep. it's not going to happen. And we've seen uh, Kinder Morgan, for example, draw from the uh, 19.5 level to 16.5 level in the last four weeks. So people are starting to say, hey, maybe this thing's not going to happen after all. Yeah, so, so let's stick on the topic of Kinder Morgan. Um, widow and orphan stock in, on Bay Street used to be TransCanada Pipeline uh, or Enbridge. Uh, yeah. Nice safe dividend. You got the pipe. Stuff's got to move. Uh, long-term contracts. Long-term contracts. Yeah. Uh, everything makes sense, but the stocks technically are acting pathetic. Though all the pipes are acting very, very weak. Uh, yet you're talking about seasonal strength in the commodity. So what do you make of the pipes in here, Don? Well, see, the pipeline stocks have a history of being uh, sensitive to interest rates. Mm-hmm. And there's a pretty good chance that you're going to see interest rates in Canada uh, go up uh, again at least three times uh, during this year. We had a little bit of, um, of support to that uh, actually on, on Thursday when the CPI figure came out for Canada, actually Friday. The uh, CPI in Canada is starting to ratchet up, and that implies that the Bank of Canada is going to have to do something sooner than later. So implying that we could get higher rates in Canada. Mm-hmm. So that's not good for 
high-yielding equity securities. Uh, we have Don Velo on the line. Uh, his website is www.timingthemarket.ca. Uh, he's also on stock tweets at Equity Clock. Uh, so, Don, uh, just just to sum up, um, coming into the month of, in, into April, we got ourselves some strength. You believe we spoke about trading the U.S. crude producers. You mentioned the base metals that you like as well. What about the U.S. stock market? Uh, I continue to like uh, the Fang stocks. I, I'm just looking at leadership. I'm seeing leadership in J.P. Morgan. I'm seeing leadership in Amazon. Leadership in Facebook. Uh, leadership in Netflix, the the gaming stocks, the chip stocks, uh, as opposed to the dividend payers, the yielders. We spoke about the bond market and the interest rate environment. The yielders are obviously not working. Um, the stuff in between is a bit of a potpourri. So uh, beyond oil, beyond uh, base metals, um, how would you be putting money to work in here? Yeah, you're onto something here. Uh, there's seasonal strength in a number of those sectors or that you mentioned. The U.S. Uh, uh, financial service sector historically has gone to a period of seasonal strains from the middle of February right through until May. Uh, that seems to be clicking in once again. Uh, the retail sector, uh, during the spring buying season, uh, that includes Amazon, by the way. Yep. Historically, uh, the stocks do very, very well from approximately the middle of February right through until the beginning of May. Now, the word of caution. Uh, historically, during a midterm election year, like we have this year in the U.S., uh, U.S. equities do very well until the end of April, and then you get all the political noise starting to come in, and that has a negative impact on U.S. equity markets. You know, Don, I'm glad you bring this up because uh, the four-year cycle, the presidential cycle that you are referring to, you've done a lot of work on this. I know you have, and you taught me your work, and as such, I was speaking to Jack about just this topic uh, a couple of weeks ago. You know the nuances better than I do. Uh, so the, the second year of the presidential term tends to be relatively lackluster. Is that correct? Well, it is between the months of May until October. It's the weakest period in the four-year cycle. Right. And then the third year is the best year of the cycle, Don? That's correct. Which is 2019, so that's in front of us. So, my friends, optimism from Don Velo. And he's a market technician. He read the tea leaves. He looked at the charts. And historically, he's lived it. It's, it's, it's all there for us, isn't it, Don? Hey, why not? Why not? Uh, TimingTheMarket.ca, great website. And if you want another app on your phone, that way you can memorize another password, uh, Stock Tweets at Equity Clock. That's how you can find Don Velo. Don, we're going to bring you back, my friend, more often than you can imagine. It's going to be great. Appreciate you having us, uh, having you on the show. Hi-Fi Radio, folks. It will be right back after this with Scott Chan to talk about the Canadian banks. Money. Let's take a break. But after, Wolf and Jack will continue their in-depth discussion about money. You're listening to Hi-Fi Radio from Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. Welcome back, Hi-Fi Radio. Jack Hartle in the studio with us. And we got uh, Scott Chan on the line. He covers the big, bad six banks. Hey, Scott, how are you? I'm fine, thanks. Yourself? Not too bad, thank you. So uh, CIBC and Royal Bank uh, reported results this week. Uh, they both raised their dividends. Uh, so that should make shareholders happy, eh? Yeah, absolutely. How were um, the results? Yeah, the results were good. Um, you know, we're expecting dividends from five of the eight banks that report. The other six banks report tomorrow. Um, you know, the banks are, are in this pattern of raising it every other quarter. Uh, so CIBC raises dividend by 2% this quarter, RBC 3 That was in line with our estimates. TD next week is the only bank that raises it once per year in Q1. 
Uh, last year they raised it by nine. This year we're looking for seven, uh, but it could be ten. And ten percent would be pretty big. A ten percent uh, dividend raise. A ten percent dividend raise, and if that's the case, that's going to show uh, very strong earnings momentum or what they feel um, twenty eighteen is going to look like, and it would be a very positive signal to the market if they raise their dividend by ten percent. No kidding, because because you know I think the world really uh, it had a bit of a hate affair with Canadian banks uh, looking at a real estate market, looking at a weak commodity market. Uh, Americans definitely. Uh, Americans, the they're, they're all over the Canadian banks. Actually, I know a Canadian uh, investor who's short the Canadian banks. Do you think that's a good idea to short the Canadian banks, Scott? Right here, uh, right now. It's- you know, in, in the short term, it's worked. Uh, in the long term, it hasn't. Uh, as you know, including dividend yields over 10, 15, 20 years, the banks, on average, look at the big six, have returned about 15% uh, annual returns, CAGR returns to shareholders. Yeah. Um, you know, I would say CD is a bit different in terms of, uh, you know, Canadian banks because it's got the most U.S. exposure. Uh, and, and that's why it's our favorite bank. It's got about 33% of its net income derived down south. Uh, and I believe the fundamentals are, are better there uh, in terms of 1819 than what you're seeing in Canada right now. Without, without question, yeah. Yeah, so Scott, just getting back to the CIBC, you mentioned it at the top there. Uh, they made a huge acquisition, private bank corp down in the U.S. Uh, seems like it's going well. Uh, they really paid up for that uh, for that stock. I'm just wondering, what's your view on it? It seems like the street likes the fact that CIBC is less Canadian now uh, with that U.S. exposure. Yeah, I mean, initially, when they uh, when any bank does a large acquisition, especially in the U.S., the uh, you know, the short-term price momentum is always negative because it's going to be dilutive at the start. And uh, certainly in the case uh, when CIBC made its initial bid, uh, the, the fundamentals in the U.S. got a lot better in terms of rate increases and Trump and uh, lower taxes. And uh, the ultimate price was very, very high. Uh, you know, if I can remember, they paid about, uh, you know, price to 12, 12 months earnings of about 18, 19 times and, and well over two times tangible book, which is, uh, a significant premium to, to where CIBC trades right now. I mean, CIBC uh, trades at a modest 10 times earnings uh, and, and less, you know, less than two times book. Uh, the first quarter, or 39 days of reporting, was rough uh, for CIBC in terms of private bank corp, but it really didn't give a clear picture. Uh, but the last two quarters, Andrew, question has been very, very robust uh, in terms of sequential growth on the platform. Uh, it's still early days, but they're starting to get some synergies in terms of cross-selling, uh, getting Canadian clients, uh, you know, getting deposits on the U.S. side. It's helping out the capital markets business down there. Um, so last quarter's uh, results on the U.S. side, earnings were up 18% sequentially on a quarter-for-quarter basis. Uh, so, so pretty good results, but the street is still a bit hesitant uh, in terms of the transaction. Uh, I think they want to see more quarters uh, of delivery. Uh, and, and I think if CIBC can deliver that, that relative valuation, that cheap relative valuation that CIBC trades at, I think you'll get some upside, uh, upside medium term. Um, in our report yesterday, we kind of cited the U.S. Midwest comps uh, to private banks traded about 15 times forward earnings. Hmm. Um, and, and CIBC's target is, is to get 17% of its earnings down south uh, by 2020. Right now, it's about 11 12%. Uh, so organic growth and more bolt-on acquisitions are, are going to get them there, I think. So the, so the reason why they went down there to begin with is because there's less growth, I guess, up here in Canada. Is that correct? A lot of uh, restrictions coming onto the Canadian banks? Yeah, initially they had the strategy of just doing wealth management down there. And if you recall, they bought this like big asset manager called the American Century. 
Um, I think they bought about a 42% ownership, and they decided that wasn't the way to go to grow, uh, buying separate, you know, separate boutiques down there and trying to scale it out. So they sold that investment, and they told investors uh, that they were looking at, you know, at a PNC or specifically a commercial platform down there, um, you know, to, to help grow wealth and, 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 and its other segments. And I think that's the right strategy, but it takes more time to, uh, to, to prune up and, and really deliver results. Uh, so it's a wait and see, uh, you, know, you know, I think kind of, uh, you know, pace, you know, with the acquisition. Uh, but at the same time, you're getting paid to wait because CIBC pays a 4.5% dividend yield, uh, not too shabby in a low-rate environment. Uh, earnings growth has been a lot better than expectations. They beat, they beat earnings uh, on a total basis over the last 12 quarters with an earnings surprise of about 6% on average. And yesterday's beat was a 12% earnings beat. So uh, the street is still kind of weird in the name because of the housing issues and whatnot that they're most exposed here in Canada. But I do like the strategy of them diversifying down south. And but they, that's what we want to, I want to get to that because that's exactly it. I want to talk to you about mortgage default rates. Have you seen any pick up in the balance sheets of the banks that you're looking at? No, I mean, uh, I mean, uh, from the two banks that are reported, delinquencies have been uh, uh, kind of flat sequentially, so so very very low levels right now. Mm-hmm. Part of part uh, of their, which is good. I say part of their beats, I think, were driven by the fact that they have lower loan loss provisions, right? And in CIBC's case, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Look, we got Scott Chan on the line here. Uh, he's Canada Court's bank analyst. Uh, just went through the numbers of CIBC. Rove reported this week. Coming up next week, we got five of the other eight banks reporting results, and Scott's going to be paying attention to that. So stay tuned, folks. We're going to just go through a break and come right back to Scott Chan right after this. Money. Listen, we're going to take a break. But when we come back, money. more money talk. You're listening to Hi Fi Radio from Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. Welcome back, Kai-Fi Radio. Scott Chan is on the line. He covers Canada's big six banks and the two little ones on top of it. Uh, so before we get into the details of the devil, my friend, uh, they're going to raise interest rates a couple more times in Canada. Uh, Jack said when they raised rates recently, his mortgage rate instantly went up the next day. Uh, yet those high interest savings accounts didn't budge. So how long does the bank wait before they actually pay you and I, the depositors, a little more sh- money on our deposits we have with them? I mean, yeah, that's a great question. If I look at the U.S. side, who started raising, raising rates a bit earlier than Canada, um, it was about a year and a half. So I suspect in the second half of this year, uh, depositors will get uh, a lift on the, on the yields on GICs and high interest savings accounts and whatnot. Um, so right now, the you know the banks and you look at RBC's results today uh, are really benefiting from the three past rate hikes over the past fifteen months in Canada. Right, because they charge the customer more and continue to pay you zero. And it's actually it's actually in their forecast this year coming out going forward. They expect to have higher net interest margin, which is right. the amount that they the spread. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, pay, pay versus pay. receive. Unbelievable. They're good. They're good. So you know, it's a reason to own the banks. You know, people I say if you complain about the Canadian banks' fees. Buy a little stock in the company. Uh, they they you, are a toll booth on the economy, right? At the end of the day, everything has to pass through them. So, so Scott, Business how long commerce. does this continue for? The, the earnings continue to be pretty clean, slow, steady, Eddie. I assume that they're basically beating the TSX over the last five years in terms of net results all in return. Yeah. Uh, they that, are 40% they, of the TSX, too. Well, which is the you. scary thing about it. So, like, how long does this, 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 this uh, Goldilocks environment continue for the Canadian bank, Scott? Yeah, um, you know, I think a lot longer than previously because they're a lot more diversified today than, say, uh, mm-hmm. 10 years when we ran into the credit crisis. 
Uh, a lot of the banks are cognizant of that. So a lot of them are expanding into wealth, uh, more capital markets, uh, insurance, uh, and other regions, frankly, right? Yeah. Like national strategy is, is going international um, in the U.S. through Credigy uh, and through Cambodia and some banks uh, and some banks in that Asian region. Um, a lot of the banks on the U.S. side, all the acquisition opportunities are uh, not in Canada. You know, it's going to be more non-domestically. So it's a more diversified portfolio. Don't get me wrong. I mean, if, if, if you're going to see a pullback in the market, the banks will get hit because they're involved in everything, in every sector, uh, not only in Canada but globally. But, you know, I think they're well diversified. Their capital position is pristine right now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they've delevered their balance sheet since the credit crisis. Uh, one was the function of OPSI, you know, putting limited floors on it. Uh, so the banks have uh, built up a very strong capital position in the last seven years, which gives them the opportunity to raise their dividend. Uh, you know, we're looking for dividend growth of 6 7% this year. Uh, for the group, it gives them the opportunity to buy back stock. Uh, you know, Royal completed their NCIB last year buying 30 million shares for over $3 billion. Uh, so that benefits shareholders, and then it gives them the option for acquisitions. They bought they bought three billion dollars worth of stock last year, Royal. Last year, over three billion. And, and sorry, the market cap of Royal is now hundred and what billion? How, Oof, it's about 100, over hundred billion. Yeah. So they bought almost three percent of their float. They bought back. Wow. Yeah. We, yeah. Now, and did, did they add debt on top of it? Did they basically borrow money to 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 buy back stock because that, that's a big yeah, theme that's going on in America, right? To yeah, borrow yeah, money no, to no, buy back it. stock. That, that's America. This is this is excess capital that they're generating from the business. Yeah, so this is like and, and and the payout ratio on their dividend then is how much? About fifty percent, on, well, on average all, for, for the sector. All of them target forty to fifty percent. Yeah, and and uh, you know our math for eighteen on average, they're, they'll, they'll hit the middle of that forty five percent, including the dividend increases that we forecasted and the NCABs. Which range from zero to three percent across the big six banks right now. Well, what are your favorite banks to hold right now for 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 new investors who don't own any Canadian banks? Like you don't own any Canadian banks. <laughs> yeah, I mean BNS is uh, Scotia Bank. Practiced the most Scotia Bank, and Scotia has been very aggressive because they had the best capital position at this point last year. Uh, they've made three acquisitions. The most recent one buying uh, Jaroslawski Fraser uh, for nine hundred and fifty million. Uh, they've also added scale in Chile by buying BBVA Chile, and then they've also added scale in Colombia by buying Citigroup's uh, uh, P&C business down there. Uh, and then that just shows you, you know, with excess capital, they're not raising equity or, or using debt. Uh, they're using cash to fund these, these transactions, and they're creative uh, because they're using cash mathematically. Um, yeah, so Scotia is the most international bank that, that, that exists in Canada? Scotia is the most international bank. Uh, they, they derive about one third of their uh, earnings outside of Canada, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, and 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 you know TD would be our second pick for the same reason because they generate one third of their income uh, down south in the U.S. and we're very favorable there. Uh, the emerging markets and where Scotia operates, I mean it's it's more risky, uh, but it's potentially for higher returns. If you do see a market pullback, BNS will underperform. So I think TD is the the more safe pick. Uh, especially if you're favorable towards the trends in the U.S. market. Uh, certainly listen to commentary from uh, the U.S. peer banks that have reported as of December. Uh, you know, they're pretty favorable in the market environment 2018 in terms of commercial growth and personal growth uh, down in the U.S. So, uh, you know, TD would be our, our favorite pick, but BNS, I think it's got the most upside near term just because it's retracted so much lately. Mm-hmm. Hey, Scott, it's Jack here. I just wanted to bring it back home a little bit. Uh, these new mortgage rules coming to Canada, uh, have, they, have the banks commented them out on them at all, just with the higher stress tests and, and more restrictions on lending? 
Yeah, it, it, it's a bit it's a bit too early to tell because it's only been a month plus in. Um, but the banks have guided for about uh, with the new B20 coming in. So uh, these new stress tests um, are are, are going to make it harder for certain borrowers, especially first time home home buyers, uh, to buy a home. But the banks have uh, targeted about uh, originations being down about five to twelve percent this year, uh, based on the new stress test rules. So you're seeing mortgage growth of about six, seven percent typically over the last five years. You're guiding towards four to five percent based on that origination target. Um, so still growth, but it's going to be uh, tiered. You, you'll see a slowdown in the first half as people kind of digest it and, and, and take a wait and see approach. Uh, a lot of the banks have commented in the back half. It, it, it should be uh, more normalized, but it's definitely going to be slower than the past five years. And when you're talking about mortgage growth, you're talking about dollar growth or a number of total mortgages? Assets growth, yeah. Right, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Scott Chan, a real pleasure to have you. Analyst with Canaccord Genuity covering the financials, including the big six banks plus the two little ones. More information coming for you next week. Look forward to getting all of your notes on the rest of our banks. Coming up next, we're going to talk about the bond market uh, with Tim Hicks of Canso right after this. Making money is the best. So how do you make more money? Come on back after this. You're listening to Hi-Fi Radio from Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Yes, you are, because you're listening to Hi-Fi Radio. Wolfgang Klein, your host, Jack Hartle, your producer, and we have Tim Hicks in the studio to talk to us about the bond market. Tim is with Canso. Uh, Canso is a fund manager, and they manage fixed income. Uh, how, many, how many billions of dollars does, does Canso now manage, through, including Lysander? Including Lysander, we have roughly $22 billion in assets under management. $22 billion in assets under management. That's a lot of money. And, and, and you're playing in the, in the land of bonds, which is the land of almost zero interest rates. Uh, that's a tough space to be playing in right now, without question, eh? Yeah, and I would say $22 billion is a lot of money, but it's small compared to a lot of people. So no, without question. We still believe we're pretty nimble guys and can swoop in and find interesting stuff. The, the global bond market is about the size of the global equity market now? No, it's way bigger, way bigger. When you count in uh, public bonds, private bonds, bank debt, all over the world, it's multiples of the equity market. Is it? Because the, the equity market Jack and I last looked at was about, was it 80 or $90 trillion global? Yeah, I think it's 80, yeah. $80 trillion yeah. global. So you, you think that the bond market is, is twice that? I don't think times? that. It's multiple. I don't, sorry, really? I don't have the number, but yeah. it's, it's way bigger than that. Yeah, huh. yeah, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So uh, how can you make money in this, in this low-rate environment, Tim? Yeah, well, that's the question, right? And so everybody wants to know. So clearly interest rates are going up. The people who don't think that's happening, I think, have their eyes closed. You have the Fed is saying rates are going up, so what more do you want? But on top of that, you have them delevering their balance sheet, selling bonds. So whenever there's a seller, prices down, rates up. But really, to cap it off now, you have the U.S. administration with these unprecedented tax cuts that they really don't need, uh, but that alone is going to push uh, rates up also. And they don't seem to care about debt uh, really at all. So clearly the direction of rates is up. 
if U.S. rates rise, Canada has to go along with that. And so what do you do? Uh, right now, the big risks in bonds are basically that it's always been there. But two things, duration. If you have long-term bonds, they're the most affected in terms of price by rising interest rates. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people are invested in, say, the, the market index, which has a duration number of about seven, which means roughly 1% rise in interest rates is a 7% price decline. And in we're expecting about a three three rate hikes this year, which is yeah. so, bonds get to hit 5%. So if you lose 7% on price, it takes a long time to make that up with just the, with the, the coupons that you're getting now. And, so then, and then credit, which where cancel really, uh, we spend most of our time is on not lending to governments where you get the lowest rates, but uh, corporate bonds credit where you get higher yields. And we do our own work by uh, not really spending a lot of time on macro top-down stuff, but company by company, where does it make sense to lend Okay, money? so you bring it up for us. Thank you very kindly. So you, you have invested, and this really got got my hair up a little bit, but you guys calmed me down because, you know, you fly the cancel airplane, which was a very safe airplane, apparently. It was, yeah. Oh, it's still, still flying today. It's, it's still crazy. flying today, and yeah. I saw it. It's, it's also your boardroom table. Mm -hmm. um, but so, so you went long Bombardier. Uh, and when I caught the note that, that Cancel went long Bombardier, you just go long. You went long Bombardier. Uh, I said, you boys better have done your homework on this one here because this has been a, a challenging story to be polite uh, in, in Canadian finance for decades. Uh, and I said, well, how could Cancel go long Bombardier? What do you know that I don't know? So share with us why you went long Bombardier. I think you went long both debt and equity, correct? Yeah, really the debt was the major focus. Mm -hmm. And I would say when we went long, uh, we had followed Bombardier for years and years. I think we don't know anything no one else knows, but we spent our time looking at it. And when they did their big bond and debt issue in 2015, it was pretty clear to us they weren't going bankrupt. And that's the main thing you're worried about if you're lending money, or are they going to be around? And we could borrow money, or we, sorry, we could lend them money uh, at 7.5%. They weren't going bankrupt. Uh, they started to get orders for the C-Series, which was the big focus. Uh, there are other lines of business. I mean, there's always the headlines about different aspects, but there are other lines of business are picking up. So to us, it was a, it was a great investment, and it's worked out beautifully for you're us. You're in the so, black on that trade now, aren't you? You're making with that trade as a positive trade for you? Well, to be honest, we've been scaling out of it, not because we think the company is in any trouble, but we just don't see any further upside. The bonds got down to as low as 60 cents on the dollar. They're now selling above par. Above over 100, eh? Over a par. Sorry, what, what did you pay for the bonds initially? Well, we bought them at par. At par, at the, on the issue, they, yeah. We bought more in the 60s. You averaged down, you broke we the averaged rule, down, eh? and uh -huh. then now we're selling it above par, so to us it's been uh, great. You're, you're heroes, yeah. I was going to say, what was it that gave you the margin of safety with Bombardi? Just the fact that uh, they're not going out of business? Was it the cash flow? Was it the assets that were backing these bonds, what, what really got you uh, excited about them? Yeah, to us, when we looked at the, the, the new equity and debt that they brought in, they were going to have enough cash on hand to get through the next four years with the build-out of the C-Series. And to us, that was the key to the whole thing. And you know, we, obviously, we could have been wrong, but we thought we were using pretty conservative numbers, and it all worked and, out. And when the uh, Quebec government stepped in, did that, uh, did that help out your case, or did it hurt it? It helped it because it gave the whole company more credibility and that the, the governments were going to stand behind them and not so let them go them. under. Yeah, yeah, for sure. sure. All right, yeah. folks, we're going to really get excited here and talk more about bonds because bonds are so exciting, but they're very, very important. Sarcasm aside, Tim Hicks from Cancel is in the studio. We're going to pay some bills and get right back to Tim and ask him some tough questions. Why should we own bonds right after this? Stay with us. There's more shows still to come. You're listening to Hi-Fi Radio from Global News Radio 640 Toronto.
Welcome back. Hi-Fi Radio, Wolfgang Klein, your host, Jack Hurdle, to help me along with the cause. And we have Tim Hicks from Canso. He's a portfolio manager with Canso, and they manage bonds, which are pieces of debt. Stock market, you own the company. In the bond market, you lend companies or cities or governments some money. So, Tim, you don't like to lend governments money because you can't make any money there. You prefer to lend businesses money. And so you do a lot of balance sheet work. That's right. uh, yeah. And then that's interesting because equity guys and girls do income statement work. We want to see sales rise. We want to see dividends rise. But the more important part of the equation, truly, when you're making any investment is, first of all, is the business going to be around in five or 10 years in case the market goes soft and you have to hold through a soft period? And that's where the balance sheet comes into the equation. Because when you get times of trouble, we all turn to the balance sheet. It's kind of lay. It's like shutting the, shutting the barn gate after the horse has left the stable. Uh, you start with a balance sheet. And I think that's commendable. Uh, uh, which leads me then to you making an, a, a position, taking a position previously in BlackBerry. Uh, Canaccord's equity analyst had a short on the stock, and you went long, was it debt or uh, equity with uh, BlackBerry? Yeah, BlackBerry was an interesting one because it was actually a convertible bond. So not only did you have the, the fixed coupon payment, 6% at the time, but you also had the upside if the stock was to recover. And, and that, in that case, they didn't really need the money, arguably, but the there was a long story there with uh, wanting to go private, and they didn't go private, and they did the convertible. So, so we did that, and we we earned our six percent, and we ended up selling those bonds at a bit of a profit. And again, from a balance sheet perspective, like you say, that's the the key. And at Canso, we not only look at what's the chance that something might default, so what additional yield are you going to get if it uh, based on that chance, but also like you say, the balance sheet. If, if the thing does, if the thing, if the worst does happen. What's your downside? Because normally when you're a lender, there's a recovery, right? It's not like stocks. Right. It's not necessarily zero. And so we've always taken the, the, the approach in our uh, portfolios. If we think there's a big downside, say there's a lot of debt uh, that would be paid out before you got paid back, or uh, the company doesn't have much in the way of assets, then we don't want to take as big a position in that bond as something, say, like we're buying now, which is covered bonds of banks where we think if the if the worst was to happen and the bank was to default, not only would you uh, be a senior creditor, but you'd also have access to this cover pool of assets that you get with a covered bond. So, so margin and, safety. Yeah, in I that case, we, we take a big weight. Right? And with BlackBerry, you were actually at the table with them structuring the bonds, structuring the terms of those bonds and the covenants. Was that correct? Yeah. So that's another, you know, again, with bonds, it's not like, I guess with equities, you can theoretically buy what all the other the professionals are buying. Right. With, with bonds, it's harder to do that because with BlackBerry, there was only five buyers of the bonds and they didn't really want to open it up to a bigger And basically you set market. the terms with BlackBerry, right? You said that if we're yeah, going so to invest, this is what we want. It's back and forth and right. you know, it depends on the- But, that, the, but the, the, Jack's going down the road to, with the right direction. In other words, you're able to do stuff that right. even Jack and I can't do on our own uh, because of your, your We go your to the scale. secondary market and basically buy the bonds. And if we're Correct. lucky, we may get some new issues. Because you, you had a big position in the Confederation Bridge. Uh, that was actually a very cool story, eh? Yeah, and when we still do. It doesn't trade that much. That's why maybe you don't hear about it that often because they built the bridge. They're not going to issue any more bonds. So it's not really followed by the dealers that much. But it, it gives you a great uh, yield. Uh, the traffic there is picking up, which we follow because there's more tourists coming into PEI. Yeah, the same pothole yeah. problem we have here in Toronto. <laughs> yeah, the, well, a little, little maintenance capex on the Confederation they, it's Bridge. It's hard pod. to be worse than Toronto. It can't be worse than Toronto. No, no. I, I, I want to close with one question. Uh, in this low-rate environment, a, a typical 50- or 60-year-old, do you think they should own some bonds in their yeah, portfolio? Yeah, definitely. They need to reduce their uh, the volatility of equities. But what they want to be in is, is bonds that are going to actually do well as rates rise. And there's a whole category of bonds called floating rate 
where the coupons actually rise as interest rates rise, which is different from fixed income where the coupons are fixed and they're not going to be worth as much as rates go up. So floating rate is the obvious thing to look at. Because we have to be careful for what we wish for. But as, as, a, as a money manager, as someone who's trying to help clients uh, achieve certain financial goals, I would like to see interest rates at 6 or 7%. Yeah, yeah. We have to be careful what we wish for. Because again, with that comes other, all kinds of consequences. Jack's looking at me. The poor guy's got a mortgage. <laughs> <laughs> Fire in his eye. It's okay, Jack. Not yet. You're going to have to lock, <laughs> have to lock that one in. Yeah. <laughs> uh, another edition of Five Fire Radio. An absolute pleasure to have Tim Hicks from Canso in the studio. Don, our producer, did a good job keeping those phone lines up and running. And Jack Harlow did a good job lining up the guests. Of course, I picked the music, and it was pretty cool if you want my opinion on that one. I want to wish you all a great weekend, and we will be back at Hi-Fi Radio next Saturday. Thank you. Listening to Hi-Fi Radio with Wolfgang Klein and Jack Hartle, portfolio managers at Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management. For questions about today's show or any money questions you need answered, email Wolf and Jack at WolfgangKlein.com. Hi-Fi Radio for the love of money. We'll see you next week.